something that I mentioned to people is like, sometimes an illustrator never even talks to the author whose work they're illustrating. That, that blows that blows my mind. I'm like, what? Like, how? How is that the thing? How is that the way that it works? Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be hearing from cartoonist and illustrator Zeke Pena. Though he currently lives in Fayetteville, Arkansas, for most of his professional life, Zeke has focused on the people, ecology, and politics of El Paso, Texas, where he grew up and lived for decades. A self-taught artist with an undergraduate degree in art history from UT Austin, he has built a rich portfolio of varied works that, as he describes them, are a mashup of political cartoons, border rasquache, and hip-hop culture. He has illustrated several award-winning books, including My Papi Drives a Motorcycle, which the New York Times called the best children's book of 2019, and Photographic The Life of Graciela Iturbide, a Boston Globe Hornbook Nonfiction Award winner and a Moonbeam Children's Book Gold Award winner. Both were written by Isabel Quintero, who has become a close collaborator. In 2023, he illustrated best-selling author Jason Reynolds's Miles Morales Suspended, a Spider-Man novel. Zeke's editorial work has appeared in a wide array of publications, including Vice, ProPublica, and Latino USA. I knew that Zeke had started off his career painting large-scale oil paintings before he fully committed to cartooning and illustration, so I started off our conversation by asking him why he switched from one genre to the other. Because the, the story was the most important thing, painting a four-foot oil painting is not the most efficient way of telling a story. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, that was that was probably the main reason was the efficiency, right? It's like it, it you can take two weeks to two months to paint an oil painting to tell one story, or you can draw it in a more simplified cartoon style and have the same impact and tell the same stories. And and I, I at some point I also realized that I, I felt obligated to paint that way. I felt obligated to paint realistically. It's what I was always taught that art was. It's what I was, it's what I studied in school. I mean, I had a few professors that were into like the graphic arts, which is what I always gravitated towards printmaking, uh, Chicana, you know, printmaking and, um, you know, all of that stuff. And so that long tradition, that long tradition. Right. And it, and I, but, you know, it was always the things that you go to see in museums are the oil paintings. You see all of the master oil painters. And so, I just, I realized that I was painting out of obligation. I was painting this way out of obligation, not to mention that it was more expensive. It was, took more time. It takes a lot more space to store that work and ship that work and all of those things. Um, also, it's using really toxic materials. I mean, there, there was just a lot of reasons why I was like, oh, this is, this is probably not the best for the work that I'm trying to do. And so, yeah, so I made that, I, I just made the jump and that, I never really looked back and uh, I feel so much more comfortable making the work that I'm making now. I just feel like it's coming from an honest place. Yeah. 
Now I'd love to talk about The River Project. When did the idea for the whole project start cementing in your brain? And uh, how's it been growing through the years? Yeah, I'm going to try to be as concise as possible. It's sometimes difficult for me to discuss this project because there were so many iterations and it was such dense and connected work. (laughs) So one thing connected to the next thing connected to the next thing. But I had always been focused on my region. Uh, Certainly the border is a theme in my work or a, a topic of uh, research in my work. The region being specifically El Paso and... Uh, yeah, the Paso, Paso del Norte is what it's called today, right? Which is the the region that El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, and the Isleta del Sur Pueblo, which is an, an indigenous sovereign pueblo there. That's the region that I'm talking about. But, you know, you can't miss it. It's a big part of our lives growing up there, Depending on which side of the border you grew up on, I should be clear that I grew up in the United States. I'm I'm not an immigrant. I'm uh, second generation on my dad's side. And then my mother's family is from southern New Mexico, where they've been living for many generations. And so that being a part of like my personal life, I think is what why I gravitated towards the story. But I think what cemented the story was focusing on the issue of human rights and border crossings at the time. So this is many years ago, I think in like 2012 or in 2013 was when I started to look at kind of what was going on. It was not getting a whole lot of media coverage at the time. I mean, it's so prevalent now and so, so covered now, right? I think sometimes to a fault. Yeah. So at that time I was focused on that and uh, just started having discussions Um, I got a grant from the Museum and Cultural Affairs Department in the city of El Paso, Texas. And so from getting that grant, I collaborated with uh, friends of mine, a group of friends, uh, Claudia Ley, Sandra Iturbe, uh, Carolina Franco. Like there's, there's several friends that work, my partner, that were aiding in this work and helping this work along its way. And just started having discussions with people talking about their experience with the border and with the river. And the first iteration of that work uh, was titled Waterbound. And I made a series of paintings and there was audio interviews that we performed and video interviews that we took to get people's oral histories about the water. And I think that was, that was really where it started. I mean, after you start asking people about the river, it's such a fruitful topic of discussion because it generates a lot of emotion in people. And I think what really started the river work was that in those discussions with people in those oral histories, there was a really clear generational uh, shift that happened from one generation to the next with regard to the relationship of the river. Yeah, we were speaking with elders in our community and those elders had these really significant beautiful stories about going to the river and fishing in the river and swimming in the river and sitting by the river and having parties and things like that. And then, you know, one or two generations later, which is my generation, and we have no relationship with the river and the river, if I'm being honest, was always just the border to me, right? Like it was always talked about and discussed as just being the border and, and inaccessible, so, right, in a way that it wasn't physically inaccessible in a way it wasn't for older generations. 
Exactly, right? There's this cognitive dissonance also, um, in addition to that physical distance that's created as a boundary. And also how that's, you know, the border is a unilateral thing, right? The border is owned by the United States. Mexico doesn't put up walls and things like that, right? So people on people that live on the side of Ciudad Juarez, they, they can still walk up to the river. And, you know, I mean, it's prohibited now because people get shot and things like that. It's very militarized. And so I think, you know, that generational shift was really what sparked, was the spark for that story, right? And and trying to understand it for myself. I mean, it's not it's not anything more than me just trying to understand personally why is it that I think about the river this way and why is it that I didn't have a better relationship with the river that has sustained my family for generations? So that's really what the work is looking at. And then talking with other folks um, from different areas and different regions and hearing more about what they have to say about it. What have you yourself discovered through your art in the process of this project making? For me personally, it's uncovered a lot of my family's history, right? Like in going into archives and things like that, learning about where my family comes from because the border has severed a lot of my familial history. I don't, on my dad's side, I I can't even go one generation. I can't go past my grandparents, you know? I don't know where my great-grandparents were from uh, before I started working on this project. And then after researching, it's like, oh, like, there it is. Like, they come from a completely different place than I thought they did. Had your father himself not known that history? Not even. I mean, he. I have some audio recordings. These, these are not from this project, but I'm a historian, right? So I was always going to my grandparents and recording them and asking them questions and documenting. And I have some, some cassette tapes uh, of my grandfather talking with me and my dad. And I told my dad, I said, I wanted, to, I wanted to go talk to my grandpa and I want to ask him about where we come from and where, his, where he's from. And he shared with us stories that my dad had never heard. And you hear in the cassette tape how more and more the questions start coming from my dad as opposed to coming from me. Because my, my dad, you know, they, he just grew up in a household where they didn't talk about that, that kind of stuff, where they don't share that kind of stuff. And so... Um, which you is know, also, it's kind of an immigrant reaction to, you want your kids, I guess, to assimilate. Absolutely. Like, right. oh my yeah. goodness, absolutely. Yeah, on, bo- on both sides of my family, that, that's the case. So I think that what, what we do with the intent of assimilating is we sever ties to where we're from, right? We sever the roots of where we're from. So I, I think that that's what I'm trying to mend. I'm trying to heal from that, if I'm being honest. Did you illustrate that moment of your dad asking more questions than you? You know, I haven't yet. I've made work about my dad and I've made work about my grandpa. I, I think that story will come eventually. It was how a, have they have they seen the work and how have they reacted to it? You know, they, they haven't. I didn't I'd never had the pleasure of my grandfather really seeing oh. my work. He he passed away and then my dad also passed away suddenly about thirteen years ago. So he's oh. he saw he saw some of my work, but I don't I don't think he ever saw like these projects that I'm working on, at least not in this realm, right? I like to think that he's witnessing it from a different perspective, but... Well, how lucky that you were able to witness him asking those questions for your sake it, and for his. It is. Yes, it's such a special... That was such a special moment, right? Mm. was knowing, knowing that he also wanted to know, but just never had the time or maybe the courage to ask, right? And I was happy to be that little connection 
And I think that that's the motivation for this work is just trying to help us reconnect, right? Just trying to help people reconnect to their history. And that's been through the river. When you start asking people about the river, they really start reconnecting because water is memory, right? Like the water, the river remembers what we've been through and the river remembers what the area has been through. And so when we start turning our attention to that, the memories come, you know, they flow. I guess I should have used that. (laughs) (laughs) It it was right there and I could have had that. (laughs) Do you have a plan to publish an accumulation of the river project or what's your overall goal for it? Yeah, the that project's been on pause for a little while. I think that I've taken a step back from documenting people's oral histories. I've I've really turned to my own family's history because I think it's what I have the most license and, and agency and I have the right to tell that story. I started to question a little bit the gathering, you know, cuz cuz that a lot of that work can be really extractive, right? That oral history work, it can be extractive. So I I'm trying to rethink that process and how best to move forward with it. But I do know that from a personal standpoint, I, I do have intentions of tell, of publishing the stories that relate directly to my family and to the river because, yeah, I, I literally like learned my family's history by looking at the river. Like I researching the river is what helped me understand where my mom's family comes from in that region and, and, and where my dad's family comes from. In my eyes, you're kind of writing in the genre that is in a way the most dangerous. You're writing, you're making illustrations, which throughout the decades, whenever there's a moral panic in this country, is kind of the first thing that people target, that the moralists target, because children like illustrations. (laughs) And we're seeing it happening with book bans concerning books, especially illustrated books that deal with in any way about race, the border. LGBT issues and all that. So what's it like for you to make your work in this particular social and political climate? Yeah, I I don't think that I have the objectivity to quite reflect or say something poignant or enlightening on it because it, because we're witnessing it right now. So I I can only reflect on how, how it's, it's changed. Yeah, how it's feeling exactly. How how is it feeling now and how I think I have to ask the question is has it changed the way that I've told any story or or has it changed whether or not I tell a story? I can honestly say that it probably has. I think that I have shied, shied away from things for fear of my safety and my family's safety. I've maybe tried to be more creative in the way that I'm delivering certain things. Can you give me an example? For example, I don't use a whole lot of words in my work anymore. I, I'm telling story through images. People either understand a visual language or they don't understand it. Right? Like I make, I make work for the people who are closest to me in my community. And first and foremost, that's who I make work for because that's the voice that I know how to speak in best. Um, and then I, I hope that other folks can engage with it and read it and understand it and take away something from it. But I can't say that I, I write with the intention of everyone understanding my work because it's a that's a just not going to happen. It's not it's not possible, right? There's always going to be you're always going to exclude someone. Everyone's always going to exclude someone by telling a story, and so I, I do my best to be inclusive and I do my best to be extremely accessible by using 
simplified images and simplified iconography. But I think that that's one way it's changed it, I would say. You know, I love to talk about how artists reinvent outmoded systems in their fields, especially since the pandemic. So I'm wondering if there's any if there's anything in your fields, whether in how you make work or how you get it out to as many eyes as possible, if there's any system that you think could be reinvented or be made to work much better than it currently is. Oof. Um, I think the two that popped up for me, the first one, because I'm because I do a lot of work in publishing, I certainly think that access to publishers is an issue, especially for storytellers that may or may not have the training, representation, uh, knowledge, or access, you know, to access. Uh, how did you? How did publishing? you make your connections? I mean, it was through the back door, definitely. I I always say that that I you know got into publishing through the back door. It was on a whim. I mean, I had always wanted to make comics. I had always wanted to make books from a young age, and the work that I was making, especially the illustrated and cartooned work, the comic work, uh, was always made with that intention of eventually eventually being able to publish. But I just had no. I mean, I was that person, right? Like I had no knowledge of how you do that. Like who, who do you talk to? Who do you email? How do you even do that? How is it made? Like I, did, I didn't know anything about the process. And I think that we could be doing more, even just like on a high school level of like giving young people the knowledge or just like courses or experiences or workshops or things like that so that they understand that if they feel like they have an important story to tell, that they know how to publish it. I mean, for, fortunately, I think technology and access to the internet and self-publishing is really changing the way that publishing is working, right? Like people who are self-publishing are then going on to make deals to be republished, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, that that part's kind of changing. There, There's like, it's not an ideal situation for a publisher to republish work, but I think they do a calculation on like how, how spread was the publishing and is, you know, so I think that that access, the pathway to, to accessing uh, publishing, I think is opening more, but I think there's certainly uh, an issue with like, you know, creative directors and art directors and who they're reaching out to from like an illustration standpoint. Yeah. It's just tough. So I think, I think that, system i think is publishing is very outmoded it's very archaic in the way that it works still now that's amazing still now yeah i think that i think that there's a a more collaborative way that you can make books that is sometimes happening with certain publishers i certainly don't think it's always happening like it kind of something that i mentioned to people is like sometimes an illustrator never even talks to the author whose work they're illustrating that that blows that blows my mind. I'm like, what? Like, how? How is that the thing? How is that the way that it works? I mean, and surely the author the author doesn't enjoy that either. It's just the publisher oh. trying to run, run interference just to keep things yeah. simple. I mean, I think it's like a simplification thing. It's probably an efficiency thing. I'm sure there's like you know they've done their calculations. A lot of it has to do with control. Let's be honest. They can control the narrative and control the story, which I think is fine. But I mean, if, if our intention is for people to get their honest, genuine story out there in the world, that maybe isn't the best 
way to go about it. It's with transparency and accountability, right? Like how can we be transparent about this process and accountable and collaborative? So I think that's, that's certainly something that's outmoded. And then on the, you know, on the fine art front, you know, it's like certainly, you know, access to museums and galleries, institutions, uh, you know, history museums and things like that is letting the community have a voice for what is represented in the space and letting the community inform the spaces that in a lot of places they're paying for with taxpayer dollars. I mean, my, our, our experience in El Paso is such that there's such a, such a gap between the community and some of the institutions there with the art museums and the history museums. Certainly that's changing now. Fortunately, a lot of that is changing, but I think that to go to a point that I was talking about before, like I'm certainly not the only one that's trying to reconnect to where I'm from and reconnect to my history. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine if we had these more open spaces and accessible spaces that serve the people that are paying for the paying for the space with showcasing inclusive stories and, and for many communities and stuff like, I mean, just how transformative that could be. So I think that, the access to that space is something that's um, I think of value The, you know, where do we gather as a public and as a community in space anymore? That's not centered around sports. That's not centered around going to watch a movie. That's literally like generally staring at a screen or staring at a screen. You know, it's like, where, where do we go to gather in those spaces? You know, there aren't many of them. And I think that museums you know, even I'll, I'll include theaters in this, you know, like these spaces could be, you know, perfect for that kind of gathering and, and balancing out both things, you know, like, so, so I think that that's something that I think could change and that is certainly outmoded the, the hierarchical structures of uh, institutional administration, I think are outmoded, you know, and um, I think could certainly benefit from creating some bridges to the communities that they serve and that they exist in and that they're in a lot of cases being paid for by. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to talk about, cause you mentioned that oftentimes illustrators and authors are not uh, permitted to speak to each other. I read and loved my puppy has a motorcycle and Isabel in her forward talks about how grateful she is for the work and research you did to bring her vision to life. So could you talk about, your conversations with her in creating the book. Yes. So she, she is right to point out that we, that we even talked, you know, right. <laughs> and, and, and both her and I were relatively unexperienced in publishing. Neither of us had any previous experience and we have, we have this long history in coming into publishing at the same time that I won't get all the way into, but we first worked with each other uh, on her first book, Gabby, a girl in pieces and because it was an independent publisher, they let us talk to each other. We texted, we shared ideas. Isabel sent sketches for like certain things that are in her first book. And I, and I recreated some of them. And so it was super collaborative and super open. And I'm so grateful that we had that experience. And it, and it could have only happened at an independent publisher, right? Because they're more open and they're more collaborative and it's less hierarchical and it's, you know, it's all these things. And I think that that experience carried over into my Papi has a motorcycle. 
where we went into that book deal as a team. It was like, I'm the illustrator. She's the author. That That's somewhat of a rare, yeah, that's somewhat of a rare thing. Typically an, an author is submitting a story and then the, the publisher buys the story and then goes and finds the illustrator. But we were a unique uh, package deal. And I think that the book was better for it. And then for your own art making, your own self-generated work, is there uh, is there a big picture project that you have got an eye on completing in the next few years? Yes, uh, I will be. I'm working on a book right now that I'm writing and illustrating. It'll be my first venture into being both an author and an illustrator. Wow! It's, yeah, so that that's definitely the one that's. It's, it's on my table right now. Like it's what I'm sketching on right now. Um, I'm developing the characters, uh, have a pretty solid draft of the story and the manuscript. And so that, that's what I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. Can you tell more about it or not yet? I can tell a little bit more about it. It has not been announced yet. So there's a publisher. There is a publisher. Yes. All right. And what I can share is that it's a story of a brother and a sister that uh, wake up one morning and watch something fall from the sky into the desert behind their house. And they go on a journey in the desert to go find it. Oh, yeah. oh that sounds amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Yeah, thank you so much. To read a longer written version of this interview and see some of Zeke's most recent work, please head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. You'll get to see samples of a fantastic Futurist Border series he's been creating. I love this work. If you enjoyed this episode, won't you please share it with your friends? Art Restart is on all the podcast platforms. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thank you for listening.